Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kreski on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. In more normal times, this week's podcast might have been a rep report, reviewing some of the riches screening in New York's art house theaters. I spent more happy hours than I could possibly count at those theaters, with certain years defined by landmark retrospectives and rare screenings of one sort or another. Film Comment has been lucky to count many of the programmers at these theaters as contributors to the magazine and the podcast. And so, for our latest episode, we check in with two Keepers of the Flame. Eric Hines, curator at Museum of the Moving Image and writer of our Make It Real column on nonfiction, and Ashley Clark, director of film programming at BAM in Brooklyn. We talked about steering theaters through this difficult time and the movies that have kept them in good spirits. Fair warning, we talk about Tron. A little. Let's go to the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment, and this is another episode in our At Home series, where we're all stuck at home, so we torment you with extra podcast episodes (laughs) in which we vent about being stuck at home and also, you know, share a little bit about what we're watching uh, so it's hopefully actually a pleasurable experience. I'm just kidding. It is, um, except for the uh, plague happening. But um, on this episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by um, two um, regulars on the podcast, both programmers, both critics. And I'm, I, I don't know how it's taken this long. It's probably my my fault um, to have you both back on the podcast. Um, it's just We could just start alphabetically. Um, starting with, hi, I'm Ashley Clark. Um, I am a d- director of film programming at BAM in Brooklyn, and um, longtime contributor to Film Comment. I'm Eric Hines. I'm curator of film at Museum of the Moving Image, also a longtime contributor to Film Comment, including the Make It Real column. Yes, um, thank you for filing. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, so how are you guys doing? What, what, how are you coping or, well, I guess the movies, we'll pretend the movies are the way we're coping. We don't want to share what other uh, methods you might have in case they're illicit or, or maybe they're not. Um, but, um, but uh, Eric, what's, where's, what's the view like from, from where you're sitting uh, literally or, or figuratively? Uh, well, I'm in, you know, I'm in East Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Uh, and yeah, I've been stuck in my apartment even more than most, I think, cause I had, I, you know, not to get into too much, but I had sort of mild symptoms for a while there, which to be extra cautious meant that I wasn't going out of the house at all. Um, uh, and so on week three of that, feeling a bit better, um, feeling which actually dovetails with my watching a bit more um, as well, because you know, when you're not feeling well, you're 
it, it's I'm I'm of the sort where I, I kind of just need to sit there and not feel well. I need to feel worse somehow. The the, the ideas of, of the idea of making yourself feel better by watching something is just somehow a step too far. Um, but but anyway, these days, um, yeah, I'm sort of entrenched uh, here. Um, and uh, in terms of watching, yeah, I, I went through a weird cycle of of the last month or so because um, I've you know, it's, it's it's been it's exactly a month I think basically since a lot of us were sent home uh, permanently, or at least for the foreseeable future. Um, and my first week I couldn't watch much, but I, I found myself watching stand up comedy, which is not something I normally do, just something that could be on that I could sort of drift in or out, um, and maybe be transported by. Um, and then I went through a phase of watching a lot of baseball, like full baseball games on YouTube, which there's a lot more than I ever imagined were available. Um, I'm a, I, 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 I'm one of, one of the proudest things I can say the last couple of years is I've converted, um, Londoner and cricketer and, uh, film critic, Julian Allen, uh, to baseball. And so uh, <laughs> we do a lot of talking about baseball and watching of baseball. So we've been we're virtually connecting and watching full games together. Isn't um, that a bit treasonous? <laughs> just out of interest. <laughs> <laughs> um you know why, why can't we have multiple interests why can't we, well I'm, you know? I'm asking i mean I, i've never heard anything like it but carry on <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm impressed by it you know he's 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 uh he can speak to it himself but he seems genuinely interested rather than judgmental of our sport which it sounds like he might <laughs> um, <laughs> sounds like a trap to me i don't know <laughs> <laughs> um but it's but it's 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 a wonder it's actually been a fantastic thing to be doing but then also to be distracted by to get random texts at usually very off hours for for east coast time when he's reacting to um something going on in the 1996 world series <laughs> <laughs> so so he's reacting as if this well it is it all it is all new he doesn't know he has no idea it's brand new so <laughs> It's wonderful. I mean, it's it's literally transporting because not only is it not what's actually happening in front of me, um, uh, but you're, you're, I'm, I'm able to sort of transport myself back to the moment where those things happen for me. Um, so yeah, that, that's been wonderful. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't want to sort of like say everything at the moment, but yeah, like, but I've started, started to watch movies a little bit more the last week, um, which uh, yeah, I, I'm 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 glad, and actually at the moment, finally feel like okay, I've been writing. I wrote for you, Nick, um, and I'm watching a bit too, which makes me feel like whatever work I can get done beyond the triage of my day job, um, you know, maybe maybe the next couple of weeks and months will 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 harbor some productivity there. Yeah, I, I you know it, I just realizing that for both of you, um, and 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 Ash, you, you can talk a bit about. Um, how things are for you now, but both of you uh, probably, you know, uh, Eric, you, you know, um, first look was yeah. kind of wrenched head on basically <laughs> uh, into, into the, the pandemic and its rise. And then Ash, I'm sure you've, you've had to make some, some tough decisions as, as well. Um, tough in the moment. Um, I think, but in retrospect, not even really decisions. Um, right. su- such was the speed that everything moved. So as as you said, we're about a month out from when we were all sent packing. Um, and it seemed like a big decision on the following Monday um, to 
pull the print calendar for our April May programming, which was 99.9% done, just awaiting final sign off. Um, and that print production had had a lot of you know good work gone into it, not least the, the, the programming itself, which was months and months in the making. So it was kind of disappointing, but we thought, well, look, we're probably going to lose some of the April programming, but we might be able to hang on to the end of, of May, which of course now looks ridiculous. Um, and then we had to make the very difficult decision to cancel uh, BAM Cinema Fest. Um, in the in the early stages of this um, situation, I was thinking to myself, well, BAM Cinema Fest this year, June the 11th to the 22nd, that's three months away. That should be, eh, not should be fine, but maybe, maybe there's a chance. And then obviously, as the situation uh, worsened, you have to factor in things like um, travel, um, you know, get guest travel, guest accommodation, uh, logistics, administration, and obviously you have to be pretty much set with everything a good six weeks before the thing begins. So it, that made absolute sense to cancel that as well. Um, so to begin with, it was it was a shock and it was difficult to to, to cancel or postpone that work, and it's been a mixed bag um, afterwards, kind of emotionally. There's been a the obvious understanding that it had to happen. Then there's been the the kind of grieving process of losing that work, but at the same time understanding that much, much bigger things are happening and you don't want to fall into that trap of getting too indulgent when the stakes are so much higher. But you also have to leave yourself the room to to mourn the work that you've put into it. None of us do this, um, this particular line of work to be millionaires. We put a lot of... Um, time and effort and love into working with filmmakers and communicating with our audiences um, and trying to push for the idea that it's still controversial in some circles that cinema is, is a real art form. It's, we still have to fight for that. It's incredibly frustrating. And we're going to have to fight for that um, even harder at the other end when it's when people are going to be thinking twice about coming back into these spaces. So all of these things are happening uh, in my mind at once. Uh, in addition to that, pivoting so to speak um pivoting to video <laughs> uh <laughs> looking at our programming through what's available to us you know working online um i, I think i've written a, a little bit in an interview for film comment about working with uh distributor kino lorber we've worked with a bunch of other distributors who've been very um adaptable and gracious and thoughtful in sharing a percentage of the of the box office of these virtual theatrical engagements by which I mean not just dumping it online, but saying we're going to play this film from Friday to Thursday. If it does well, we'll hold it over on a Monday. As much for our internal processes and to keep us sane as to keep a sense of um, the theatrical experience being paramount and not falling into anarchy um, for when we come back, keeping those sense of uh, keeping a sense of process and also keeping in mind that the primacy of the theatrical experience is still um, extremely important to us. Uh, personally, I'm here in, I live in downtown Jersey City. Um, I'm in my little um, Skype, Zoom writing nook, where only last night I took the advice of um, filmmaker Tom Ford um, in his New York Times column of how to look good on Skype, but it didn't, <laughs> it didn't really work. And I was instructed by our tech person in a Skype Q&A to change the setup. So... <laughs> <laughs> question everything you read um 
<laughs> but we've been we've been, we've been doing a bunch of like Zoom Q and A's with filmmakers, which has been really great. It's helped to help to keep us um, in contact with our audience and. Um, just technically, it's an interesting challenge and, and how it works. But that's been something that's kept me upbeat. We did a great one. And my colleague Jesse conducted it with uh, Giuliano Dornelis and Clever Mendontia Filio and the wonderful Udo Kier uh, for, for Baccarat, which was a really riotous occasion <laughs> with um, Udo's, Udo's prominent artwork in the background displaying two pigs engaged in, a, in an unspeakable act. And well, I know not an unspeakable act, a basic loving act, should I say? And um, he 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 told us that it was called making bacon. <laughs> so if it wasn't for this whole situation, we'd have never have found that out. So I'm grateful for for small mercies. Um, I've been trying to watch um, catch up on stuff that I've missed. So I know you guys have spoken about Jacques Tati's playtime which I'd somehow never watched before, but caught it on the Criterion channel, uh, which has been a godsend. Uh, my wife and I have taken to alternating picks um, one night after the other, um, which gets rid of the usual rows. And um, it's been a lot more of a streamlined process. I've also been playing a hell of a lot of uh, FIFA, uh, the soccer game on the PlayStation 4, and getting very mm. emotionally invested in it. Um <laughs> Eric Eric spoke at, uh, about baseball and about Julian's Damascene conversion to baseball from a different time zone. Um, but I think one of the things, when, you know, normally when you're sick or when you have a period off, you've at least got the sport to fall back on. So you can watch the football on a, or the soccer, excuse me, on a Saturday, but we can't even do that. So uh, simulating it and on the PlayStation and screaming at the television and scaring the neighbours um, <laughs> has been a pastime of mine and I've almost almost got round to the point of taking out my bass guitar at which point it's really all over for the neighbors <laughs> so if if they listen to this po- if they listen to this podcast they'll know what's coming otherwise it will be a surprise <laughs> do, do you have any particular standbys that you think you're going to be playing just I as can, a preview I can only play rapper's delight <laughs> <laughs> um so for the time being, that's what they can look forward to. <laughs> well, uh, well, we'll have to regroup for that because I, I, I do want to have that recorded for posterity. Okay. Um, but well, uh, go ahead. Well, I was I was just going to sort of weigh in a little bit from the museum perspective. Is and and, and you know, there was ways in which your wisdom. I know you said Ashley that there's ways it wasn't even a decision. Uh, but in you know, in, 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 I actually think it was really in March to make that decision as, as early as you did about Batman Cinema Fest, because one of the things that the demise of, of First Look was so difficult was the fact that since the, this all came down, really, once we'd begun, I mean, it really hit um, uh, just as we were starting First Look. And so we, we shut down two days into a five-day festival. Um, but dealing with the the travel and having people sort of come and then having to be sent back home, um, having flights rescheduled, having people show up at the airport and then getting canceled and absolute nightmare of that, that of course it's hard to imagine it being worse timed for us than to have that happening as people were getting to airports and getting on planes. Um, but that is such a headache. So to anticipate the idea of doing all of that labor and then having to undo it at some point, I think it's really smart to to realize that there's a good chance that you would have to, and it's just not worth it for that, you know? Um, 
to be able to sort of like push it away and maybe reschedule makes a lot of sense. And it's certainly a more sound uh, choice. And like, like, like I said, that you made that choice that early is really, I think, very wise and admirable because you could certainly have waited a, a month or two if you if you really wanted to to, to, to leave the possibility open. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the way I've told the story, you know, the very kind of smooth narrative, it's not like there weren't really fraught discussions about it and sure. a lot of a lot of emotion and a lot of things taken into account. But I, I think emotion and, and professional pride are, are things that can't be taken lightly. And some people got got hit you more than anybody really I suppose with the timing because you're forced into these extraordinarily difficult financial ethical um mm-hmm. decisions not not to speak of not having exactly wonderful guidance at state level <laughs> or, or, or federal level let's go up to the top or three level or yeah yeah or, or, any, or any you know what I mean it, it's it's so a lot of that decision has to come into your own hands and there's so much for one or a small group of people to take on um I'm you know, slightly, I, I think envious is perhaps the wrong word, but for, for major festivals that are a few months out still, yeah. that now we're actually in the position to have a slightly broader view of how this situation is playing out and how they may want to respond um, in terms of their uh, the, the ethos of, of, of their establishment, what technology might be available to them, read the temperature on how filmmakers are feeling, how journalists in the industry at large are feeling. Um, so it's certainly not envy because it's a, it's a huge upheaval any way you look at it, and it's a disruption to regular services. That being said, when you're plunged into it as you were, um, I don't think there's, a, there's an easy way to, to do it. There's, there's no easy way out of a situation like this, particularly when there's so much creative labor and goodwill involved. Yeah, I mean, timing was very, very difficult for us. But I remember even thinking in the moment, yeah, I remember casting forward in that moment what what the decisions were going to have to make be made by festivals going forward, especially those who actually had done all of that work, had done booked all those flights, booked all the hotel rooms, and having to kind of undo that. Um, you know, um, it, it's going to be interesting going forward when we get back. Um, into doing this again and we actually do gather again and we have festival i wonder how we're all going to adjust um in terms of the timing of things in terms of how certain we can be um about any of any of what we do if if we just simply have to suck it up and take the chances of of, of investing money this way or if we're going to be more careful i i don't i don't know um but uh you know there, there's ways in which some of this could have anticipated been anticipated but in a lot of ways um it's you know, there's only so much that you can actually do to to ensure something like ensure yourself against uh, a situation like this and of course there is a conversation about um migrating festivals online um and yeah. i wonder you know I'm, I'm interested to continue monitoring that and continuing to speak to filmmakers about how they feel about it because often the, the most beautiful thing for a filmmaker is to share that film with an audience oh yeah um in the theatrical space and and it it's the whole experiential thing after the fact, uh, meeting people, communing, sharing ideas, going out and having a drink afterwards, um, and really sharing your, your your work in that sacred space. So, I think that there's a lot of discussion to be had about temporary fixes um, and or major ideological shifts and and practical shifts of how how these things happen. And I can I can speak to that briefly. That not to, uh, you know I, I'm I'm sorry, Nick, if you were gonna take us somewhere else, but, but the, no, um, no. 
one of the, one of the things that we've that I've been doing, which has been uh, I'm, I've been grateful for it and for my friends uh, for doing it with me in, in, in terms of there being a focus, which is, uh, you know, uh, Damon Smith, Jeff Reichert, and I have been doing this thing called Roommate 264, which is sort of a, a serial documentary project um, based off of the, the vendor from film Room 666, um, where we go and basically make a film at a festival with 20 odd uh, filmmakers in a hotel room where they respond to question about the history of the, sorry, the future of, of cinema. Um, but we decided to do a new one, um, from where we, from where we're all sitting, a quarantine version. So instead of setting up shop in a hotel room, we're going to everyone's room via Skype. Um, and I'm bringing it up here because, you know, actually a lot of, a lot of the filmmakers that participated in this were, were, were speaking about that, you know, we're speaking about, because basically the filmmakers that we asked to participate were filmmakers who had films in festivals this time. Um, and so they're supposed to be traveling the world on behalf of their film. They're supposed to be on a victory tour, but instead they're in their bedrooms with their families or alone. Um, and I think a lot of people are reflecting on that question on, uh, you know, is, are there benefits to migrating online? Is it a terrible idea? What's lost? What's gained? Um, I can just sort of, in an armchair sense, in terms of chatting with some people and, and the way that people responded to our prompt, is I think that the the industry aspect of it, um, people were sort of surprisingly um, interested um, in how it went, say at CPH Docs, um, and, I, and a couple other events that have happened in a virtual space. And I know Hot Docs is robustly moving their forum to that space. And it'll be, that'll be a real interesting test to see how productive that seems. And I've talked to some people who felt that it was productive enough that makes them wonder whether or not they should have, or would in the future spend that kind of money on their dime or their production money <clears throat> to travel to festivals. The flip side of that though, is I've heard from a lot of filmmakers who would be presenting their films that there is just simply nothing to replace um, seeing your film with an audience meeting people, meeting other filmmakers, um, and, and, and especially with, when it comes to documentary films and documentary film festivals, that's like the main spoil of what you do, you know? And uh, spoil is sort of a, maybe too, uh, too much of a diminishing word, but like the, 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 you work for not a lot of money with not a lot of funding for years to make something out of passion. The one really great thing traditionally is that you get to travel the world on behalf of your film. And people get to see it that way, because when it comes to online and uh, and theatrical um, dissemination at this point, you know, it's, it's a, just a very, very different thing. You don't have that personal interaction with people. Um, the numbers probably are significantly less, actually, than, than audiences for film festivals. So um, th it's a good moment for us to be reflecting on what we do and how we do it and how we might be able to adjust to the reality of the world. But it's hard not to think that um, for for filmmakers and for their for those for films that benefit most from film festivals nothing that we're doing online is going to truly adequately replace that and um i think practically speaking and emotionally absolutely and i mean looking at looking at how things may or may not change in the future uh i'm i'm curious how each of you are thinking about just fostering community because i think what each of each institution has done so well is is really cultivating that and finding finding programming that is so you know really gets people engaged and, and, and coming out in great numbers and i'm curious how does the future in as much as we can you know plan for it at all how are you 
thinking about getting people excited again to gather in groups or you know come come back to to, to cinemas is that affecting the kind of programming or planning you're doing down the line let's just say the fall at least it's a good question and one that i couldn't give um any kind of concrete answer to because i'm almost not in that stage yet i'm not um i obviously have a number of programs that i was scheduled to be working on in the fall um in 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 21 we just need to see where the land lies in terms of how people how people come back what kind of patterns rather than looking at how i can how we can bring people back I don't want to force that, but I want to keep um, definitely keep to the core um, philosophy of the programming we've, which we've been doing, which is kind of rigorously researched and themed and presented in a way that is accessible and informed, um, that keeps relevant and and nimble and, and responsive to what's happening in the world without being um, didactic or bashing you over the head. I think that's why a lot of our programs have worked well. I obviously see curation film programming as an extension of criticism. So I think there's always going to be um, a a desire to see things that challenge tired historical narratives and and bring things in new perspectives. I think we'll, we'll still continue to want to be doing that. But I'm also just interested to see how and, and, and at what pace, people feel comfortable returning to the theater. So I'm having, I'm, I'm kind of looking at it that way in that there's a constant, there's a standard of programming that I like to maintain. And obviously I have various areas of, 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 in, of interest that, that I have explored in the past with my programming and will continue to do in the future. And that we will do at BAM and perhaps work more tightly across the institution, across the archives and humanities um, and other departments and education and community I think it offers us an opportunity to work more closely at this moment. Um, But yeah, it remains to be seen that the real impact this will have. We're not just a repertory house. You know, we have one repertory screen, 25% roughly currently of our output is repertory specialty events. um, And then obviously our festival on top of that. But the majority of our screen space is taken up by first run. And as, as most people will know, Studios have been either putting things online ahead of time, uh, pushing releases back to an indeterminate date. So when our doors are open again, um, what are we going to have to play? I don't know yet. So I don't even know the the, the dynamics or the, the percentages of the space that we'll be able to use. So it's all it's a very live situation. I would like to think hopefully in the next month. Um, I'll have slightly more of a sense of, of where things will go, but I'm sure this will age very poorly as, as the, situ- <laughs> the situation at large is moving so quickly. Um, but the short answer is um, continue to do interesting, challenging programming and think hard about how we present it, how we talk about it, and and make sure that we're accessible uh, and doing stuff that our community in Fort Greene in Brooklyn is interested in hearing about. Yeah, and uh, I, I also feel like I'm I'm probably a month away from being able to have a, a, a real decent response on this because thinking about what uh, our programming might look like, thinking about what it might, what engaging audiences and bringing audiences back might look like, sort of involves um, 
you know, getting us back to a point where, you know, we are restoring our staff and, and I have a, a team of people to sort of work towards that. And, you know, that's got to begin before we get to a point of reopening. And, and, and that, that goes on through, for our museum, I think for a lot of other institutions. So sort of to, to have a vision for that, um, it's going to start. I, I probably will be, be over the next couple of weeks thinking about that a little bit more seriously, um, especially if, if, if there's some kind of uh, diminished rate of infection here in, in, in our in our city. Um, in the meantime, uh, you know, like we're doing a lot of thinking and, and actually talking about this in terms of BAM, thinking about who we are online. Um, and uh, I think thinking about audience and how our audience, how much of our audience migrates to that space and how much does not, how much audience exists beyond what our normal, you know, museum audience might be and how to engage them. We're doing a lot of questioning around that, which I think will benefit us. And, uh, I don't think of it as silver lining because I don't think there is one, but I do think that there is something about the thinking that we're being forced to do here that will benefit us when we do reopen. So I'm concentrating on that at the moment. Um, but then, yeah, in in terms of what we do when we reopen, I, I think a lot of the, in terms of the museum, you know, we had, we were less than two months into our 2001 Space Odyssey exhibition and a lot of ambitious programming associated with that. Some of my favorite programming that was to come. Um, And so in a real immediate sense, like whenever we open, if we still have that exhibition and whether or not I can still do programming associated with that, that's sort of the the most tangible question that I have uh, in terms of what it looks like at the museum. And also, I just wanted to kind of jump on that as when you, you talked about the silver lining, um, which isn't really a silver lining, but absolutely giving a chance to reassess your working practices and exactly how you're conducting what you're doing. This this pause moment does offer a chance for reflection. And in terms of moving, in terms of the online stuff, we have to be aware that we're already in a in a kind of sea of content. Uh, oh, and yeah. it's a it's a it's a case of just because you can doesn't mean you should. So we're not trying to overdo it on that front. Just to say, look, we're busy. We're still working. We're still doing stuff. We're still trying to think about the stuff we're putting online, in line with our overall curatorial vision, and and really tailoring what we're offering to that. Um, but I think this is also a chance to reflect and yeah. and to really talk to colleagues do things like this, which, which are really fun and useful. And um, as we broadcast from the void, um, you know, <laughs> these things are definitely really, these conversations that need to be happening uh, across the industry. New York's obviously the epicenter of, of this crisis. So our own institutions are going to be hit in a very different way. But that mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't mean that we can't reach out to colleagues, um, not just across this nation, but around the world as well. And it's a good chance to knowledge share, um, think about what practices are working, what isn't. And also in terms of self-care, how people are looking after themselves mm-hmm. and not not going crazy at this time. Because yeah. there's a, it's, it's a very difficult moment to keep a sense of any kind of equilibrium. Not that there should be an expectation that you should keep a sense of equilibrium in, in a pandemic because it's not really as straightforward as that. But this is, again... Uh, an opportunity to to sit down and think and talk and discuss and, and reflect. And that's one uh, to close the loop on that. Not quite silver lining, but it's something. Yeah. yeah. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow.
Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Jay Hoberman on Thomas Heise's essay film Heimat is a Space in Time, Michael Kreski on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Plus, Spike Lee's trusted costume designer Ruthie Carter, Isabel Huppert in Lulu, George Romero's Lost Film, and much more. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Well, in terms of you mentioned uh, Ash, uh, self-care um, for, uh, for for me, certainly a, a certain amount of that is um, a certain enjoyment in just seeing whatever the hell comes my way <laughs> instead of um, having to be as disciplined as, as one is usually. Eric, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but when <laughs> when we were talking before, you you did mention an, an 80s film that I, I thought actually kind of made me want to want to see it again now. I was thinking about, I, I found myself putting in DVDs in a way that I, I, I have obviously tons of them as, as most of us do, but I actually am, am more apt to watch screeners that I have to watch for work or do something on a streaming, streaming service more, you know, more readily than I put in a DVD, but I find myself putting in DVDs. Um, and that made me think about um, actually how I'd be interested in watching, I have tons of VHS tapes as well. But discovered that my VHS player, um, my VCR is 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 definitely not functional, so I have to replace that. And what I actually was going to put in was the first ever VHS tape um, that my family had, which is a VHS tape with three movies on it. It's, you know, the, the long play mode, so six hours of movie was on the first tape that we ever received, duped by my brother's fifth grade teacher. Actually, um, <laughs> a lot of illegality happening um, in the board of ed apparently um in the early 80s um and the, 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 the tape had three movies it had uh star trek 2 the wrath of khan it had poltergeist um you know great viewing for an eight-year-old um and uh <laughs> tron and all three of those movies i watched over and over and over again, and probably to this day remain the films I've seen the most, simply because that was the only movies we had for the first couple months of having this magical machine. Anyway, so I, I wasn't able to put that tape in, but I did have a circa 2001 DVD two-disc uh, of, of, uh, of Tron, uh, and so found myself watching that around one o'clock in the morning about a week ago. <laughs> Um, and was absolutely <laughs> thrilled to be watching it. Um, and yeah, I, I know every single shot of, of a film that I've not seen in decades, but I know every shot of the film. Um, and confirmed what I thought it was going to be, which is that um, on a narrative character script level, it's abhorrent. I mean, <laughs> dreadful in every possible way. But, but on a performance level, kind of fun. Um, uh, and on a technical computer animation level, kind of mind blowing, um, how amazing it looks. I'm also just drawn to that aesthetic of like late seventies, early eighties, computer cinema as all, as well as computer music. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a lush garden for both of those things, um, both in terms of its soundtrack and, and exactly how it, how it, how it approximates video game, um, from, a from, from the inside, um, yeah, but pretty yeah, much. It seems, I remember. It seems like it seems like a, a great a great thing to be watching the the feeling of being trapped in a machine a little. <laughs> um. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's a very claustrophobic movie. I've just got this image of you going about in, in Tron. <laughs> <laughs> you can see it. Right? Yeah. Getting interrupted by a text message from Julian about baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the tr- this is sending me down a wormhole to the Tron arcade game, or oh, yeah. the, the three or four different uh, what are they called the, the light car, the light car being this strange metaphor for for life generally. You're constantly tripping over yourself. Yeah, um, I mean, again, like a, an amazing looking game. I was so drawn to it. It had that beautiful light up, you know, uh, ultraviolet effect, but really, really hard, much harder than it needed to be. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Um, um, and and Ash, what what has been a, a kind of what is something you just reached for? Well, well there's actually um, a, a strange um, uh, correlation because you were talking about the 80s video games, and I just remembered because I was going to talk about uh, Takeshi Kitano's Sonatine, um, and I just remembered while we were talking that he uh, he made a video game in 1986. That was like impossible to complete, and I just looked it up here, um, and it says it was called Takishi no Chosenjo. So excuse my um, pronunciation, but it was called Takishi's Challenge. That was the English uh, typing of it. He in- Kitano incorporated many of his unique and controversial ideas into the game. For <laughs> for instance, the player can beat up a yakuza gangster at a pachinko gambling establishment and take the Yakuza's money to exchange for prizes. Um, There is also a choice on the password entry screen, punch the old man, which results in an automatic game over, even when the player has not even started the game. (laughs) Other in-game events include a game over screen where the player's character is given a funeral, singing karaoke at a a pub, the main character divorcing his wife and paying a settlement, beating up Yakuza, or even punching the main character's wife and children, open parentheses, presumably to death, close parentheses. It was <laughs> it was rated uh, as one of the worst video games of all time, according to <laughs> Famitsu magazine. Anyway, I just thought I'd um, update listeners <laughs> on that. Um, Sonatine is this film from 1993, 94, I think. So it was... Um, before Hana B, which I think was the major the major hit, but after mm. Violent Cop. And it's it was fascinating to watch because I haven't I think it was um given patronage by Tarantino uh, in in his the era of him putting his name to things in the early to mid nineties and helping right, them right. kind of cross over in in inverted commas. Um and I remember really being into it, but I was struck uh, anew by how um just how unique and thoughtful and measured and unusual this film is um it stars Takeshi Kitano as a yakuza who's kind of fed up with the whole game um and somehow ends up getting double crossed by one of his colleagues and ends up in a remote hideout on a beach somewhere and the film just turns into a very apt study of boredom and loneliness and isolation with Takeshi Kitano and a bunch of psychotic uh, yakuza just trapped together on a beach trying to find ways to amuse each other and make each other laugh before it all kicks off. Um, and it's such an such an unusual and confident uh, piece of work. I was really, really delighted to revisit it. Um, I'd brought a whole bunch of DVDs back over 
from London uh, every time I go back and I'm continually moving stuff back over for the last five, six years. Um, and I went through all my DVDs and stuck them in a case. And so I've been kind of going through those as well. I haven't seen this film for maybe 15, 16 years and I'd forgotten a lot about it. Uh, and I really, really recommend checking it out, particularly because it's so uh, apt for this moment of trying to figure out ways to enliven your time. Yeah, that's. I remember seeing that when it when it when it came out, and uh, I mean, I think I was in high school, and and I can't really say I, I entirely um, understood what I was watching, and and I always think that's usually a sign that something was interesting was was happening. I think I was also just at that moment where I was understanding that not understanding what you're watching might be a sign of something. It's, interesting. it's not a bad thing, and it's it's yeah. a really. Um, smart combination of very wry and sardonic but it's also deeply felt mm. um which was a tough ask especially in that in that era of i know i think this film probably came out before pulp fiction uh yeah this was 93 but post reservoir dogs and there was a whole boom of like po- postmodern um isn't violence hilarious let's right. all be wi- let's all wisecrack constantly but to actually have that emotional undertow um, is very skillful. And it speaks to his very unique talent uh, as, as a filmmaker. He was obviously also a comedian and, as we've discussed, a video games developer. Um, <laughs> but really, uh, really interesting. And I saw Hannah B at the Metrograph a few years ago when they did um, the Kitana retrospective. And it was great to see that. But, yeah, hadn't seen this in a long, long time. And I was really glad to revisit. Just want to his resume um reality tv um personality uh one of the, one of the, one of the great reality tv personalities. oh takishi's castle i mean that was do you guys know a sitcom uh, not a sitcom well it kind of is a sitcom uh science fiction sitcom in the uk called red dwarf of course yes yes right so you know um what's craig charles's character is it lister with the dreads the black that's... guy who's not there's two black guys there's the light skinned guy and then there's cat who's obviously cat that's turned into like Elvis Presley Chuck Berry kind of thing for some reason um i think it's lister but anyway he's played by craig charles who did the uk voiceover for takishi's castle which i grew up watching so oh, wow. yeah yes, and he right. also did robot wars as well um, we're, oh, yeah. we're really delving our childhoods here i think that's that's another <laughs> knock on effect of this I feel like yeah. Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite. Like I just want to go back. <laughs> no, any, anywhere but here, really. Uh, yeah, because here, here of... is unrelenting. So you got to find another place to be. Dave Lister. Yeah, there you go, Lister. I was right. And and it's also interesting that the the you mentioned that this is. I think that was probably a Tarantino presents film, Son of Time. But I, I can't remember. That reminds me of one another one of those that I saw then, which was Switchblade Sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I don't think I've seen or heard about anything ever since. Uh, um, but I remember the the main character having a just extraordinarily squeaky uh, voice uh, and just being kind of a, a, a riveting focus for it's like, I don't know, bubblegum gang war. Um, but uh, yeah, that's also sending me back to, uh, to an earlier era of, of kind of compulsive uh, or rather obsessive, you know, movie going um um i mean for my money i'm trying to think what i've seen first i also want to mention that um eric you said that wrath of khan was on your threefer um vhs tab 
for some reason, I too have a two-in-one Betamax tape with Ooh. Star Trek Wrath of Khan on it. And on the other side, I believe, is one of the Meatballs movies. <laughs> Probably two, right? Because I feel like early 80s is Meatballs. I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, so obviously a highly coveted um, fetish object of, of childhood, <laughs> um, which I have no way of, of viewing anymore. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been rough. But, um, but man, I, I, I have no memory of Meatballs, too. I mean, not a memory and i'm sure i've watched it multiple times yeah it's, pro- it's probably just as just as well i think you don't want you don't want a meatball to stick with you really uh, in any way um i i mean i think one thing i've done is i've i just wanted to see something a, a couple of things that were light or, or, or comic um, but light in many senses so we we found ourselves here watching boyfriends and girlfriends uh, the Romare movie of 1987, um, uh, you know, just w- where you're just able to kind of lose yourself in the fr- fr- uh, sort of frivolity, but of course, you know, every small moment is important um, of, of, uh, of uh, you know, two friends as they, as they sort of fall in and out of uh, relationships um, and cause problems for themselves basically problems always entirely of their, of their own making um, get depressed about not knowing where they're going to go on a long weekend or a bank holiday. Um, all these things that are, are luxuries. I, I, I would love dearly to have again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I was something also, I, I, I finally watched a Preston Sturges movie that I've been kind of saving, like in case of emergency break glass. And I think this was the emergency finally, um, <laughs> And that is uh, the beautiful blonde um, from Bashful Bend, um, which is a pretty maligned Sturgis movie um, with Betty Grable. That's where she plays a six shooter, um, just a, uh, slash like dance hall performer um, slash turns into like a school teacher when she has to flee town after shooting a judge in the bottom. Um, <laughs> So it has the usual kind of Sturgis madcap, uh, you know, plotting, but it's it's really as if it's just like in the lower gear. It's like in it's just second gear, one first gear throughout it, um, which is a strange thing because I think I talked on this podcast about seeing the, the great McGinty again after a long time. Um, so it's it's odd. It's also all in color, so you get to see his usual cast of characters. Um, I'm kind of blanking on the on the names, but it's usually rogues gallery of character actors, all in color. Which and somehow that was jarring. Um, they all look older, even though maybe it's just a few years after. Um, I don't know, Miracle of Morgan's Creek or or, or Great McGinty. So that was kind of a bittersweet uh, viewing, but absolutely silly and has Sterling Holloway uh, and another um, redheaded guy playing just the most lurid cartoon horrible um you know bullies class bullies um i I, it's actually turns my stomach a little to think of them they're uh (laughs) i i I mean if you want to look it up they're just there's they're like turned up to past 11 up to like 300 it's it's it almost upends the entire movie it's so bizarre um but they smoke and drink in class, et cetera. And I don't know. Um, but so, you know, that, that was definitely another kind of simple 
pleasure just just in the sense that yeah she's she's just trying to wrangle some kids and uh and none of it makes any sense and there's no attempt to make any of it make any sense i saw uh, a, that, a great um thing that i was looking forward to for a long time but had not somehow not found the time but was wildwood new jersey which oh was God. Um, <laughs> um, it, extremely poignant in terms of you know being able to be outside um yeah. but this is a film from 1994 directed by Ruth Lightman and um, Carol, Carol Weeks Cassidy. Um, and it's just this very straightforward, very empathetic um, documentary where these filmmakers go down the, the boardwalk in Wildwood, New Jersey, and talk to these girls for, you know, the film lasts about an hour. And it's just lots of very candid, very sensitive um, interviews with these girls about their experiences, aspirations, hopes, it's extremely moving. It's got kind of obviously not in terms of milieu or, or, or content, but um, style, uh, Paris is burning vibes, just in terms of the, the candidness <laughs> of the way that the, the subjects or the characters are speaking. Um, and I found it really moving, not just because it, it spoke to a life where you can actually go out. Um, but yeah, I thought it was great. And I, I did speak briefly to Eric about it, who I know was... Um, is a fan, yes, significant, yeah, and 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 uh, a fan, but also because uh, the era captured there is an era where I was spending a lot of time in Wildwood, New Jersey, so there's a there's an extra level of of uh, of 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 power for that film as a document. It's I, I I love that movie. It just it has I just also love how they're all so proud of the you know their 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 rituals and their community and everything. Um, it's I just. Yeah, I, I, it's so rare to see that um, actually um, be captured in, in that way. Um, and also, I guess I forgot to mention, um, I mean, I also like that it's, you know, it's young young women and, and teenagers, just Ash, as you said, talking very candidly about their lives and also just getting into fights, which is, is, is great as well. Um, uh, we've just started watching slash rewatching My So-Called, So-Called Life. Oh, um, wow. So... So I mean, yeah, that's that's really I don't know. It's such a pleasure to hear about Wildwood, New Jersey, right now as as well. Was it just you couldn't get enough Jared Leto? Is that what brought you? In? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's you know when you're addicted to something like that, to someone like that, there's only so much deprivation you can take. Didn't um, he come you... back from the pan? He didn't know that the pandemic was happening. He was like, <laughs> yeah. he was like a Burning Man or something, and was like, yo, <laughs> he was he was on some gathering. retreat. Yes, yeah. a retreat where all his fans can spend time with him while he's in a moo-moo. Um, that, that's less we came back. It wasn't just like he was under a rock. He was actually leading a cultish retreat. Wait, really? Oh, yeah. Look it up, man. Nick's oh. furious that he wasn't invited. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, so far he's, he's just sort of, yeah, a, you know, the dull heartthrobs that hasn't really been fleshed out yet, but. God. Okay. Yeah, I remember distinctly when that show began. Yeah. Um, yeah. But speaking of, of television, I mean, I, I, you know, I cannot recommend highly. I can't recommend higher um, the poor man's TCM, the movies network. Um, you mean movies? Movies, exclamation point, which I think is like 5.2 on your um, uh, antenna dial. Um, yep. Because I, I, I really love uh, – because I, 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 I wind up getting um, immobilized by 
choice from streaming networks and the lists of films that I want to see, the piles of DVDs that I have to figure out which one is worth my time. But I'm still old enough, I think, to get derive a lot of pleasure and distraction from just turning on the television whatever happens to be on is something that i'll i'll spend a little time with and and that network never fails um between showing very very good films and also like very obscure films that nobody's choosing to show right now um i get a lot out of it um so like last night deep into the evening because i've not been sleeping especially well um they they have their thursday noir um uh ritual and and they showed like murder by contract and scarlet street one after the other mm. um and i was thinking about when you were talking about the um um Ticano film uh, murder by contract actually um from what i saw of it i saw about an hour's worth there's a whole sequence where the gangsters are kind of killing time going to movies together and stuff and it made me think about that and i'm actually would be curious to know if that was actually something that he had seen um as inspiration not that it's like as 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 much of a feature of the film, but it's a, it's definitely um, in a lane that you don't see very often uh, travel down. Anyway, but movies exclamation point. I was just going to quickly say, just in terms of um, influence, another thing I watched was uh, Lady Snowblood, um, which I'd not seen before uh, by, by Toshiya Fujita, and it was kind of amazing to see the extent to which it had been an influence on Kill Bill. Um, yeah. In in a similar way to like when you're watching Joker and the extent to which it quotes King of Comedy and um, Taxi Driver, and you're 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 actually having to ask yourself where the homage ripoff line is. This is like the the least breaking news thing anybody could ever say on a film podcast. <laughs> you know, this has been litigated and relitigated. But just having never seen Lady Snowblood, I was kind of startled by that. But um, where the, where that line of influence, um, homage, and outright thievery, <laughs> but you know, I, it's an interesting yeah. one. Yeah, but, I mean that. Yeah, that is it is such an interesting. Also, the question of when that sort of like personality, the you know, video store savant who's like smuggling rarities to you, and then if they become a filmmaker, is is kind of able to pick and cherry pick these things, and it's and it's all on the on the up and up. Um, because you know they've kind of reframed it, um, but yeah, if you actually watch the source material, um, you see how many of the the thrills and and the sudden you know flashes of inspiration were flashes that had had come to someone else twenty twenty five to a different filmmaker twenty five yeah. years earlier. I mean, I think it will be the same for people like really young guys who are young people who are watching Joker for the first time and are taking it as a you know as a, as a serious somber and fairly thoughtful movie for for what it is mm-hmm. um and then maybe five five ten years later we'll be seeing king of comedy and, and taxi driver and being like oh fuck like what <laughs> i didn't know about that and it's it's just yeah. um it's that constant loop of appropriation and reference and homage and i just i don't mean it in any of it in a pejorative sense yeah. um right. i felt for robin thick you know when he got done for blurred lines by the Marvin Gaye estate, you know, I've got a heart. Um, but I just, I just think it's an ongoing thing. And um, yeah, yeah. Pr- yeah, more profound no, insights from me there. I mean, it's actually, like having this extra time is interesting to me because we're all put in a spot where we can actually make these discoveries in a way that maybe we don't have the time to just toss in a film 
like that, that um, without necessarily having a reason to, to do so professionally, where we can actually, in a delayed sense, have these realizations. I find myself a lot of time being friends with and following on social media, younger film critics who are encountering films that I encountered 20 years ago and having new responses, being shocked by the things that we're saying. Oh my God, I can't believe how much this is influenced by that or how much this is influenced by something else. And there's something charming about seeing them have realizations for the first time, something that I saw 20 years ago. But now actually in this moment, I feel like I'm actually afforded that opportunity in a way too, because there's so many films out there I've not seen, so many connections I've not made. And I have a little bit extra time in which to do that. Would well, you remember yeah. when the internet discovered Meet Joe Black a few weeks ago? Yeah. <laughs> and couldn't believe um, Brad Pitt's Jamaican accent or his eventual fate. Um, and it was great. like, yeah, it, was like, it, it wasn't an obscure movie. This was, you know, this was a big, it didn't do especially well, but, you know, it was, it was everywhere and it stars very famous people. But yeah. that, that felt like some kind of strange yardstick like if this film is it has been so culturally forgotten and yeah. yet as i remember at the time was everywhere and starred yeah. brad pitt like the peak of his beauty as a young man yeah. and oscar winner anthony hopkins um if that can be totally in the trash bin of history then <laughs> what what else you know is is considered lost or or un- unknown or underseen and, and it kind of helped to reframe that for me yeah no, I think that's right. Yeah, but, but that yeah. Said, you know, where you you and I can still discover films from somebody else's past that they, of course, uh, was again was pop culture to them, but we weren't around yet, and now we're still coming across it. Um, you know, that that should happen all the time, but it does seem like maybe the frequency is increased for us all. Yeah, and I mean, and I have to say, those those when when people are discovering things that are, are more familiar to me, it's hugely energizing because it's you sort of get to live vicariously as well, <laughs> you know, watching them feel feel it for the for the first time, and 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 then just hearing what their new new things they'll say about it. Um, so that's that is interesting. And then something we're just talking about here, I think, under under the surface is a certain rediscovery of boredom. And uh, what it can do, uh, or maybe not boredom so much as a certain kind of idleness or uh, uneasiness that um, we hadn't had before. And um, boredom is something I always cherish because it tends to lead to some very interesting discoveries and ideas. Sure, sure. Um, and idleness, you know, I think bored, yeah. bored is probably does it. I mean, you're right. I mean, I think it's an apt word, but considering how anxious so much of us are so much of the yeah. time. Right <laughs> I'm so over this pandemic, guys. Jeez. <laughs> But it's idleness, you know, like, what are you supposed to do with yourself? Like, you can't do the things you normally do. What are you supposed to be doing? And I think yeah. it does things like, I mean, you know, um, um, Fran Leibovitz, uh, this interview that was published in The New Yorker yesterday, which is, by the way, probably my favorite thing ever published. Um, and she <laughs> talks about how all of a sudden friends of hers who were avoiding the phone for the last 20 years are calling her up on the phone and really want to talk. And that's it's so fascinating to see that happen. And I'm doing it too. I mean, I absolutely could not, I can't stand, I've avoided video conferencing in every possible way. If I can, I hate the phone and <laughs> I am making, making plans, you know, cause this is my way of socializing. Um, and there's something really fascinating about that and what comes through, you know, what would that, what that yields? Um, so that, that's not quite the same thing as just uh, of the film conversation, but it is definitely, you know, we have behaviors here that um, we're adapting and it's interesting to see what comes from it. 
Yeah. Definitely. And the, the embarrassment for me of um, that, that compound embarrassment um, of having that space to discover things and realize how long it's taken me to actually do that. Um, and as I mentioned at the start, watching Playtime for the first time and clearly having seen myriad films that were influenced by Playtime and thinking they were so extraordinarily innovative and now only now seeing this and realizing that that was where so much of it came from. That, that's one that's been one kind of fun thing to do with my time um and i i just completely agree it, it, the, this whole situation has warped my sense of time and productivity and what i what i'm doing and what i should be doing and, yeah. and how i fill the day and it's been a really um there's no, no easy answer or no one answer to it but it's just been a fascinating uh not to sound glib given the, the overall context of everything but it's been a strange self-discovery process in terms of how, how you want to connect with people yeah actually yeah absolutely um actually ash now i i one of the things i've been i've been putting off for a while was was rewatching bamboozled on the on the, oh. on the on the wonderful criterion edition so i actually watched watched you um which is i don't usually get to say on this podcast um but yeah that was that was great can i tell you one um, quick thing about that um, sure. <laughs> I, I shot that interview with Spike Lee on what was the hottest October day on record. <laughs> and you know you know the scene in Broadcast News where Albert Brooks finally gets his shot at the big time because mm-hmm. um, William Hurt's been like prepping him oh. and he <laughs> cannot stop sweating yeah. for the life of him. And he has to like change his shirt halfway through it. I'm telling you, it wasn't far off that. I was like, I wrote a book about this. I get a chance to sit down with Spike Lee. He, he's cool as a cucumber, obviously. Like, and I'm just sitting there. It's just lashing off me. And I was like, how are they going to fix this in post? So <laughs> I hope it didn't hinder your enjoyment too much. But um, no. it, it, I, was, I, it was a fun project to be part of. <laughs> no, I, I, I can't say I even, even noticed that it. it seemed like a very smooth <laughs> conversation. It wasn't like in the comic strips where they're like, you know, sweat, like jumping off the, the head in the droplet. <laughs> it's probably worse, worse than I, it probably felt worse than it looked, but it was like, <laughs> oh no. Cause you know, when you can feel that first bead yeah. go, it was like, oh dear. But yeah, yeah. Um, that, that film is, I'm glad it's had a, another kind of moment because as I, as I write about in the, the essay that I did for the, the Criterion release, um, the, the way that reality has accelerated to the point where you have you, people like Diamond and Silk, um, the, the Fox contributors, the two, uh, the two black ladies who stump for Trump. These are, thing, these are characters that would not, they wouldn't make it into the script for Bamboozled because they'd be too much. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah. it's, it's a bracing experience to watch today. Yeah, no, that that's that's it was definitely a movie that watching it again was literally like watching it for the first time, just in terms of its uh, shock power and uh, yeah, and the sharpness of it. Um, well, I, 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 I'm looking and seeing that we've actually been talking for an, an hour, which is probably more than I even asked of, of, of your day. So I, I appreciate that. Please so, don't go. Uh, <laughs> 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 we can we can <laughs> we can hang on just a little longer <laughs> the 24-hour podcast is boring <laughs> welcome to my new podcast it's called separation anxiety <laughs> um but uh thank you both for 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 talking um i hope you have 
great weekend lined up. Um, and yeah. yeah. Yep, I'm sure. Um, but uh, I'm, I'll see you both on the side, and I'm sure we'll be talking again yeah. soon. Thanks for having me, Nick. Thank you. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi monthly magazine published by Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment. Featuring an extensive interview with Kelly Reichardt, along with an essay on her latest, First Cow. Also, an interview with the directors of the fiery genre mashup Baccarat, Michael Kresge on The Perseverance of Cinema, Amy Taubin on Sundance Highlights, and Pietro Marcello on the inspiration behind his Martin Eden. Support independent, nonprofit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.